Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig and welcome to this week's episode of the Full 60, the first episode of 2020. And I'm extremely excited about this one because Kevin Allen, who in, I would say, mid-December, announced on Twitter, like, pretty surprising news to the hockey world. Uh, He said, after 34 seasons, I'm out as USA Today's hockey writer. Details aren't interesting. Merger, staff reduction. It was my turn. Was always proud to work for Nation's newspaper. Still am. Hoping to stay in the NHL. And man, I saw that, and you saw the responses. Over 2,000 likes on Twitter, 315 responses to him, uh, over 200 retweets. And that was just from that one tweet. Um, the hockey community just poured out their affection for Kevin. And as part of that, he was able to write kind of a going away column at USC Today that told some great stories. And Kevin is just by nature, a great storyteller. So I wanted to have him on here to kind of, you know, I wanted more context than just the tweet as to um, everything at USA Today and how that went down. But more importantly, just to talk hockey, to talk about Kevin's illustrious career, um, a Hall of Famer, both for USA Hockey Hall of Fame and the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. He's in the uh, writer's wing of that. Just, you know, one of the best writers who's ever covered the sport. And so, uh, I was really excited when Kevin, when I reached out uh, via email to Kevin, said, hey, can you do this? I know it's a really busy time with the holidays and all that. And we found a quiet place to record on New Year's Eve day. And it was such a fun conversation. So let's jump right in. The full 60 with Kevin Allen. All right. So I'm sitting in a dining room here with um, a good friend, longtime friend in the hockey writing community, Kevin Allen, um, and who who I've been meaning to get on this podcast for a long time. So first of all, Kevin, thanks for, thanks for doing it. My pleasure. I'm really excited to do this. Kevin, I, I want to start because you dropped a bomb on, on the world of hockey the other day. Or now it's been a couple of weeks now, I guess. Gosh. Um, with your announcement with USA Today, can you just share everything? Like, let's yeah, start I mean, right there. Oh, let's, I mean, USA Today dropped a bomb on me. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, we had a merger. Um, Gateway newspapers and Gannett uh, merged, and uh, uh, because of it, uh, the announcement was made they were going to cut three and four hundred million dollars out of the budget and twelve percent of the staff. But you know, you never think it's going to be you. I mean, I've gone through this many, many times, right? And uh, I saw many of my friends lose their jobs. Um, it's always been difficult, and then suddenly. Uh, you know, I won the lottery. Uh, mm. They they called me, and it was just like anybody who's seen the movie. You know, kind of up in the air. That's how it goes. You know, they they you know you. Uh, in in my case, it was on video because I didn't live there, and uh, um, you know they were polite and nice about it. And I was devastated. You know, I mean, I I was even though you know it can come, you talk about it with right. your friends. When it happens, it's really shocking. But I'll tell you, every minute that passed, uh, you know, I got better and better. Yeah. And by the next day, I thought, you know. I had such an incredible run. Like, who lasts as long as I did? 34 (laughs) years, you know, as a beat writer. And by the next day, to be honest with you, I I was fine. Like, you know, know, this had to happen eventually because of the industry. Um, Which, by the way, is a sad state of affairs. Where we're just like, 
Well, we're all, it's all gonna have, it's gonna happen to all of us at one point. Right. So whenever our number is up, like there's not even you know there's no like hey I'm gonna I'm gonna get my watch and glide off to retirement. Like you're right. Like we're all just no. I mean, and and to be honest, um, uh, I felt like they treated me with respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a farewell column when you get shown the door. Uh, how many people get a farewell column? Yeah. I, I, I couldn't think of anybody else, but I asked for one, and they gave me one. Nobody tell me, told me what I could and couldn't write. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I felt good about that. I mean, it sort of felt basically with the people, um, uh, with the way that my colleagues treated it, it felt like I was retiring, to be right. honest. I mean, people were really uh, kind of gracious about it. And and here's this. The coincidence is, is that I was going to be in Washington anyway for the hall of, hall of fame because i'm on a selection committee so i was able then because i was there to get together with you know 10 or 12 of my colleagues who i'd known for years right. including some who had left before me and we got together so it it felt like a retirement i i don't see it as a retirement like i'm hopeful uh to get uh, back and to stay in the hockey world or stay in journalism and we'll see what happens but right um but um i think that's how my friends treated it uh like you know uh i mean i'm retirement age i'm beyond i mean i could just collect social security i'm like right. like i'm there so so anyway so i you know i'm not bitter about it um uh i was stunned when it happened but you know i, I feel good about it i, I feel like you know the second act is, is about to begin we'll see what it is that's great i so like really you could have if you really wanted to you could have been like you could have gone on on your own terms I love that you're like I. Kind of, I want to keep doing this. Like, yeah. I, I don't know how. Like, I have no idea how I will be. Like, if I'll be like, you'll never hear from me again, or if it's just like this because we do have one of the. Our job is fun. Like, let's be real. Like, yeah, no, no, it's it's tremendously fun, and that's <laughs> and you know, I mean, like how many of our friends? Well, I, I always say this. I, I used to right here in, in locally where I live in Ypsilanti. Yeah, uh, there used to be a group that got together of doctors lawyers uh, the police chief used to come down i mean this was you know 15 or 20 years ago and we would all get together and all these guys have incredibly interesting jobs and invariably we'd end up talking about what i was doing you know <laughs> and i at that point i realized you know i really do have an incredibly fun job and it's never a drudgery um and you and i actually had a conversation you won't remember it but we were talking about the, the writing aspect of it and uh, it was right at the time for me, writing was changing at USA Today. We were doing f- more lists and mm-hmm. it, it long form journalism that I was accustomed to. It, it, we were morphing out of that into something else. And I just expressed some thoughts to you that, boy, you know, I kind of missed just kind of doing it my way. And um, you talked about writing. Like, you know, the one thing you said to me was, you know, I, I enjoy the the challenge still the challenge of writing i haven't really lost that and it really kind of gave me pause and it forced me to kind of take stock and i realized i really hadn't either like i still enjoy sitting down and writing a story and i remember and i always tell this story it was it was in 1984 and it was the best explanation of writing that i ever heard and I was covering spring training down in Sarasota, Florida. Okay. And uh, I was there covering the Tigers. And because I was working for the Port Huron Times-Herald, and I was trying to um, 
convince everyone that I was national caliber, that I wanted to go even higher, um, I was just working my tail off. And I was writing three or four stories a day because that's what you do when you're young. Yeah. Uh, so after a one o'clock game, it usually took me three hours to get my four stories done. And I was the second to last <laughs> guy. to get you with me, by the way. That's, it, a, that's a ridiculous pace. But anyway. Yeah, it, it is. But, but, you know, that's the way you yeah. did it back then. But there were two guys left in the press box. And I'm sitting there, and the guy next to me was writing a column I learned later, I didn't know at the time, on Mike Squires, who had been a longtime uh, Chicago White Sox guy. He had actually played every position, and they were cutting him. And he, this guy was trying to sum up Mike Squires, very popular role player, yeah. his, his career. And he's staring out in the press box just over the field, and it's really quiet, and he goes, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. And I'm, I'm the only guy there, so I turned to him, I said, what do you hate? He goes, I hate writing. He huh. says, I, I just despise it. I despise writing. It's just so miserable. Like, I have to work so hard at it. And I, you know, I, 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 it's, I just really, really, really dislike writing. I said, well, why do you do it? He says, because I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and I thought, right. that is the best explanation yeah. of writing. You know, yeah. so, it, you know, it can be torturous. It can be difficult. Uh, it can be trying. And, uh, but, you know, when, you know, you love being done. There's nothing better than having written. You right. know, sometimes the writing is hard, but you love it when you're done. You look at what you've accomplished. To me, the hardest thing is sitting down and doing it. Like, I lo- actually, I enjoy writing. And I know I'm probably in the minority. Like, you hear that phrase. Like, I, right. I enjoy having written. To me, I just can, like, it, it takes that, just sitting down and doing the first couple of sentences. So I trick myself. And I'm always like, all right, just get the first paragraph. It's going to be horrible. You're going to get rid of it anyway. Just get that first one out of the way. And then and then I, I end up typically keeping it. And it's just sitting down and doing it instead of like messing around on Twitter and yeah. making, making an extra phone call you didn't have to make or whatever, right? Um, I, I do like once I get it, like you get into that groove or whatever, I love that that moment. Yeah, I, you know, I started on a typewriter um, and uh, in the 1970s. And I, I, when I first started, I used to always look around because I loved the idiosyncrasies of writers and the way they start. And, mm. and back then, I had one. I, I kept uh, redoing, like you'd put a, p- a fresh paper in the uh, typewriter, and I'd have to get my lead perfect. And like the whole rest of the story could be, you know, taped together and yeah. crossed out and thing. But that lead had to be pristine. Right. And so until I got that lead right, I would just throw out sheets of paper. So <laughs> anybody would look over, you'd see like 15 of them in my wastebasket because I had to get it right. But I remember guys like, you know, some people would twirl their hair. Yeah. Some A guy that I work with, it was the same ritual all the time. It was the 70s. So he was a smoker. So he had to have a fresh pack of cigarettes. He tap it twice unravel the string pull out one cigarette put it in his mouth drag once set it down and he'd start right. that's how he started every story and <laughs> and you know and everybody had habits like that back yeah. then today it's a little yeah, i still see some people you know you see some people they have little ticks when they write yeah. or they look but for the most part do i have one i, I guess no, you don't know if you do yeah I, yeah i haven't seen one from you but uh I know. I, I can only. The only person I know if I'm sharing a press box with is Sean Rourke of NHL.com because he's the loudest. He's got the two finger typing and he, he pounds. just pounds yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's like, oh, baby, I know, I know Rourke is banging one out right now because he is the loudest. Yeah. And it's great. He knows it. Like it's. I'm like, how you must go through like ten laptops a year the way he's, yeah. he's doing it. Well, and we've all worked with guys that have to have it quiet. And, yeah, uh, or they get other, mad. Like, I, like that are on yeah. deadline. That are like, sh- like really, like yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've never seen that side of a person. Yeah, and I'm not bothered in the least by anything. No, whatever's happening, 
has happened. And I, you know, I just totally, um, you know, phase it out. But I've, heard, you know, we've all been by guys that just stand up and say, "Shut up," yeah. or, you know, or, or what, what's going on. So um, the only time I felt that way, I won't say what city it is, but there's a, a press box where there's a radio guy that always does like 50 takes of whatever his like. So be coming at you, that, well, hold on, let me start over. We're coming at you, and I'm like, I swear, if you don't get it on this take, like I'm the most patient person in the world. I feel like in that moment, but I can't. You know, yeah. certainly there's got to be somewhere else you can go. Um, all right, so I, so so you you kind of alluded to it, and I loved in your and you, that you did get to write the farewell column because I I learned stuff about you and or just stuff I'd forgotten that you make the leap that I don't know if you can make anymore from a paper in Port Huron to a national. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was like going from double A to the majors. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, and I was fortunate that, you know, I was at, um, a, a, you know, a major chain newspaper, Gannett, um, who had a flagship like USA Today. And they were going, and this program, like you couldn't do this today because of the way you know, finances work, but we, they used to just basically suck the talent out of all the other newspapers and you went on loan. Right. So you would show up and then you'd work four months for USA Today and then they'd send you back. And the whole thing was you you take what you learned back to your newspaper, but really (laughs) you're just, you're just rehearsing, (laughs) right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're auditioning. Yeah. And, uh, and it was so confusing that, the people who were there full time didn't know who was on loan and who wasn't. I'll give you an example of that. I started to do baseball by the end of my four month run. And, uh, I was writing, I, you know, I can't remember all the stories I was doing, but th- that was at the time the Minnesota had opened the, uh, not, not their current stadium, but the stadium before that. And I did a story about how it had so many doubles and I was writing stories. And about a week before I was supposed to leave, the baseball editor says, Hey, he says, you know, you've jumped over here because I was general assignment. He goes, he goes, I, you know, I like what you're doing. I'm thinking about asking Henry whether you could permanently join the baseball desk. And I laughed. I said, you know, I'm on loan. He goes, ah, oh. like <laughs> he just had no idea. Right. And that's how it was. Like we, you know, we, our staff was so large. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the most people I can remember having in the sports department was 109. Mm. So we had 109 people covering the whole uh you know nation essentially yeah. and it was the craziest times because you know how tight we all are in travel but back then because we were trying to establish ourselves you'd come in on sunday because we worked all work sunday through thursday remember there was no internet mm-hmm. uh and you know you uh, on, you were like off on friday and saturday because we had no paper there was nothing to write yeah because yeah. yeah, we you know we only came out monday through friday but you'd come in on a sunday and you'd say you know uh, from my perspective, you know, I want to go to Edmonton and Calgary, and I want to go to L- L.A. on the way back, and then route me through Detroit, uh, <laughs> and then I'll come back because I was living in Virginia at the yeah. time. And, um, you know, I'll need $1,500 cash, and I want to stay at Marriott's, and I want to fly northwest. Right. And then, like, an hour later, you just would have all that, like, sitting right on your desk, oh. and off you'd go. And the idea was we needed to establish who we were, and that's what we did. We, you know, we'd carry the flag and you know, write stories and, and do that. And, you know, or you'd walk into the office and Henry Freeman, who was the first sports editor, would say, hey, Kevin, can you jump on a plane and go to New York and cover a press conference? Like, that happened all the time. Like today? Like, yeah. can you get on a plane? Yeah, just, <laughs> right. and, and, you know, you, you and, and if it turned out you had to spend all night, you'd just buy clothes. Oh, my yeah. god! I mean, you would. That's that's just the way it went. Now, it didn't have happen often. Usually, you can just go up and cover the press conference and, and you know, come back because they had to shuttle from Washington to New York. But, 
you know, we, we were constantly, I, I remember John Bannon said, uh, uh, you know, back then we had such incredibly tight source rules. Like I think in the first 15 years, there was only a handful of times that we were allowed to use unnamed sources. And I actually um, had used one of those. Mm -hmm. um, I, got, I got clearance for it, and that was when uh, the Minnesota North Stars packed up in the middle of the night and, and yeah. moved off. And when people got their paper the next morning, the people in Minnesota learned what had happened through USA Today, and we, no we, we were able to do it. So we didn't do that very often. So it was hard for us um, to be to break news because you know people don't want to go on the record. Right. But John Bannon, who was one of our editors, I thought put it best. He said, "You know, we're not much on offense here at USA, but nobody goes to the ball like we do." <laughs> and that was so true yeah. because when there was a a breaking news story, you know, we could put eight, ten people on it. Yeah. Like I, I remember one time, the first high school uh, football team to require students to drug test. Okay. Uh, I don't even remember what state it is. That's terrible. But it was thirty some years ago. Yeah, sure. And anyway, it's a huge story. We're going to do a cover story. Cover story is thirty three inches. John Pitts and I are assigned the story. Um, I, I think we probably interviewed between the two of us twenty five to thirty people. Uh, we had mothers, fathers, athletes, school officials, ACLU, state high school federations, lawyers, experts in the field, drug testing people, and it was a tight thirty three inch cover story. We were very proud of it. Yeah. And I don't remember what happened, but something happened. I'm, you know, maybe somebody passed away or whatever. And Ward Boucher, who was the editor, came over and said, "Yeah, I hate to do this to you guys, but..." You've been bumped. You're not the cover story anymore. And we knew what that meant. He goes, you know, you're the strip. So we went down from 33 inches to nine and a half. Oh, okay. So I remember John Pitt said, you know, oh, the battlefields at USA Today are littered full of great quotes that, you know, just didn't make the cut in the final. And so we worked at it. And it was just a tight nine and a half inch story. Like, it was just incredible. And lo and behold, I don't remember what happened. Ward Boucher called us over again. He goes, something else happened. You're the hot corner. Hot corners, 5.25 inches. Okay. So how many words? Just to give the listeners some perspective. Five, five like, inches. That would be 150 words, 170 words, <laughs> 190 words. So Versus you know, what was the original? You said it was 30, 33. 33. So that would be 1,000. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, a little more than 1,000, maybe yeah. 1,100. But the... Uh, uh, so we ended up writing a story that was five and a half inches of, of type copy, but we quoted five people. And I, I remember telling John Pitts, that is probably the best 5.25 inch story that the world has ever seen. Yeah, like, I would say. It, it, it was just incredible. The quotes per inch. Yeah, the, yeah. Like, the, it, you know, the fact that we could quote you know, five <laughs> or six people in that amount of time. But, you know, it was just exciting back yeah. then. You know, we were such a new concept and... You know, to be, you know, to be able to know, no matter where you were, basically in the world, because if you traveled, you could still get in, in, you know, Munich or you know Hamburg or wherever you happen to be. But in every hotel, we were available. So you know, I, I always used to joke with the players that it never really happened in the NHL until it was in USA Today, because <laughs> we were, you know, it was right. just my little joke. But uh, you know, so you know, I would go up and introduce myself to players, and people would say, yeah, I know who you are, you know, I, because you know, I was the only guy writing hockey. Morning. Yeah, they're reading it in that morning, and there was no internet. Right. So we were we were huge. You know, we were really really big. And some funny things have happened. All that. You know, Jack Demers one year um, got mad at the Montreal um, media, so he banned all newspapers in the dressing room except for the USA Today. <laughs> <laughs> and so, of course, the Montreal writers called me. Yeah. You know, what am I going to say? Right. I didn't have anything to do with it. But it was a pretty funny story for about. 
you know, six or eight hours. That's amazing. Uh, so, I mean, I'm sure you have a million of these examples, but I, since you mentioned it, I, I want to kind of tell the story through this, the, the, the North stars move. So if you, if you don't mind sharing like, like the reporting that went with it and then just the reaction, like without revealing sources or whatever, but like, how did that come about? Well, um, yeah, I can't reveal sources, but um, I learned about it uh, the day before, and the guns, of course, um, were heavily involved mm -hmm. in it. And um, once they knew I had it, uh, they contacted me. Okay. Um, and they weren't denying it, but they weren't really telling me, but they really wanted to know how I, I got <laughs> it. Uh, and that was the, the big thing. And anyone, you know, George Gunn was a very colorful character back then. Yeah. Um, and he was, of course, the, you know, the San Jose uh, uh, group. And his brother was uh, kind of the more of the money guy. And, um, you know, it, it was just one of those things where I'd heard a rumor. And when I checked on it, it was true, to be mm -hmm. honest. And um, the, uh, people in Minnesota were stunned. And it caught the... Uh, local newspapers by surprise as well and nobody really knew but it was uh you know it was it was back then like you could never do that today. oh you couldn't even uh, i was just you, thinking you know, that as you're saying this like a, this even well, well well just scoops were so different like right. imagine that i could write that and and put it in my newspaper so i like that was probably uh, set for type at eight o'clock that night and people didn't get it till six in the morning so yeah. that it's for 10 hours it's it's you know it was and it was there the next morning and then people pick it up and you know and it's the same thing i told it in my farewell column in one of my um you know favorite uh, moments and i and i really i've i told i've told mary lemieux this story how much i appreciate the respect when you know i learned um through a roundabout way that Mary Lemieux was working out and I started checking and I realized he was coming back. And uh, um, I got it confirmed by two sources and they let me go with it. I put it out and uh, as Tom McMillan told me later, Tom of course is vice president, a former newspaper guy for the Penguins, he said, um, he called Lemieux and said, it's out. And he said, who got it? And he said, Kevin Allen. He said, give him 40 minutes. And, and so for 40 oh, minutes, ESPN and everybody else oh, had to give them 40 had, minutes. Basically, had to say according to Kevin Allen right. because they couldn't get it confirmed anywhere. And then after 40 minutes, they started saying, "Yeah, it's true." You know, and, that's great. Uh, I love that he he could appreciate he that did. that meant something, right? Yeah, to, well, to you and to your company. Well, the funny thing about that is, is and you know this, uh, like um, Lemieux doesn't do interviews, right? Like I have a great relationship with with Mary Lemieux. Uh, I know him well. I've been to his house. I've interviewed him many times, but I can't get him on the phone either. Yeah. But when I see him, you know, we're very friendly. Right. He's the greatest guy in the world. He'll walk over and shake my hand, ask me how it's going, and everything else. But you know, you can't get in the phone. But back when he was playing, you know, we we had sort of a playful relationship, and uh, people don't understand that. But t t you know, like the use of humor. Like I'd say, I'd walk up and say, "Mary, I, I just need three minutes," and he'd laugh, <laughs> and then he'd get his, he'd start looking at his watch, and he'd say, "Go," you know. Right. And he wasn't really yeah. giving me three minutes, but it was how we played. We played the game, and he was always helpful, and uh, you know I've always had that. But I, I always felt like that was kind of the ultimate respect that he gave me those forty that he, minutes. That's and, amazing. Yeah, give him forty minutes. That's great. That's great. <laughs> and like that, like to understand, like for me, I get stressed in that window where I'm the only one. So I could, I don't even know if I could imagine sleeping on a story that that I've broken because I get 
even if it's now in the Twitter five minutes, I'm stressed because I'm like, what if what if I'm wrong? Or what if someone they change and they you know they're staying in Minnesota? Like yeah. I wouldn't have slept that night. Like yeah, uh, with no. that story. Well, I was I was totally confident. Yeah, no, but, right. you know, particularly you know because of the people that I had talked to, so I, I didn't have any trouble sleeping on that. I, the ones that I do remember more are the ones that got away. Um, mm. Herb Brooks, uh, I knew he was going to be the. Uh, he he had actually called me and said that uh, he was going to be the coach of the 2002 U.S. Olympic team. Yeah, I, I knew it three months before it was announced, but <laughs> I, I wanted to write the story. And he said, "Kevin, you just can't." Like I yeah. promised, I wouldn't do that. And I sat on that story, and I would call him like every week. Yeah, Herb, you got to let me write it because I had written a column like like a year before saying, you know, uh, this would be a great idea. And Herb called me, and he said, you know, nobody had talked about that till you wrote that column. Then all of a sudden, Walter Bush had called me, hmm. and all that kind of stuff was going on. And uh, I had talked to Neil Sheehy about it and everything else. And I was afraid too many people knew. And, right. of course, they had. Yeah. And at some point, uh, I don't remember, I had gotten Herb said, you can write it tomorrow. And the, the day before, I believe it was Tom Jones, if I'm not mistaken, but yeah. somebody got it in Minnesota. And just beat me but oh. that was that was the agreement that i had made with him yeah you know? and yeah. you know you, when you're a journalist you know you don't go back on that and uh you know he gave me that you know before he even told me he's like i got something to tell you but you know you can't write it. right right and uh he said but i'll give you it to you when we get close and you know he just it wasn't his fault he you know but uh uh i wish i would have pushed him a little harder and that's a that's a like a tough spot like i yeah. don't you know what i mean what so my, my strategy in that situation is I'm like, man, okay, like I'll remind you know, I'll be like, not that you owe me, but right. like I need something. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Maybe you owe me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He did he did. He actually did, but Herb Brooks was good to me. I, you know, the funny thing about Herb Brooks too, and I've I've joked with some of the players on the A team, I have written so many I, I was not at the nineteen eighty Olympic Games, believe yeah. it or not. Um I, you know, I was actually working in Arizona when that happened. I was right out of college. And um, but I've written the five-year anniversary, the ten-year anniversary, the fifteen-year anniversary. I've written a book about it. I've done so much about it that Herb Brooks began to believe that I was there, <laughs> even though when we started all that, he, he you know he knew I wasn't yeah. there. But over the time, you know, he'd say things. Well, you remember you were there, right? And, right. and, and I always used to correct him. And then finally, it happened so often. Uh, and I think Ruzioni gets confused every once in a while he'd think yeah yeah you know kevin well, yeah you know the story so, <laughs> yeah 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 well there. i do know the story but i wasn't there you know, so. I, I was just having dinner last night with someone we were talking there's a malcolm gladwell podcast where they talk about memory and how like you just can't trust your own memory or other people's oh memory. for sure and like they think they're telling the truth and it's not even it's they've combined events and they've put it together so like it may get 10 years from now you might be convinced you were there you will be telling oh this this reminds me when i was in lake placid and you know just because you've told the story so many times well your mind plays tricks on you i i I often tell this story i've written numerous books and um uh, the one thing that i have learned that is the most important for me in doing books is just what you said. Yeah. You can't trust anybody's memory. Right. And I try to look up everything, but at some point, because I do a lot of as told two books, you have to trust some some things they say. Yeah. And and you know a couple of times you know their memory wasn't good and it wasn't one that I could have guessed I should have checked. Right. But I have I've caught numerous guys and then you go back to them and they say oh yeah 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 now, now that you say that that's right but you got to check. All that, and although the one funny story I had was, uh, 
Sam Lepresti, who um, I think he still holds the record for 63 saves in a regulation game. I, I think that still stands. I yeah. could be wrong. But anyway, he was, uh, during World War II, he was in the Merchant Marines. And um, he told me the story. He was still alive when I was writing an American hockey history book. And he told me this wild story about getting sunk um, by a German U-boat and um, being in a life raft for 57 days and drifting all the way down towards South America and being picked up by an Argentinian thing. I thought this was the wildest hair. And he goes, for the last nine days, we we had uh, we ate uh, uh, malted milk balls, uh, and that's all we had to eat. And I thought, wow, this is just this can't be. Right. So I went and looked it up in the New York Times, and lo and behold, it was exactly how he had told that story. Now, he was like 80-something yeah. years old when he told me that story. That's amazing. Yeah, but it was, all the details he had were like right on the money. Um, Jeez. You know, so as some guys just have a knack, and some guys really um, – I, I love great storytellers, as you do, yeah. um, because they just make your job so much easier. But he was a great storyteller. Well – if that happens to you, I, I imagine that's a that's something you're not well, yeah. forgetting. Yeah, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. But that's oh, that's crazy. Um, uh, so did, now was hockey? I don't know if we've ever talked about this. Was hockey always the goal, like to, as no. a writer, to end up in this? No, in this not world? not not at all. It was a really accidental. Um, I was a huge hockey fan growing up. Um, you know, Gordy Howe. I grew up in his era, so I got to see him play. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I enjoyed the game, always talked about the game. I would say uh, it was one of my favorite sports. But, you know, I was uh, first and foremost just wanted to be a writer and I wanted yeah. to cover a, a pro team. And um, I, to be honest, when I went to USA Day, I really thought I was going to be a baseball writer. Yeah. And, uh, and then as I wrote in my farewell column, uh, Rod Beaton, who had been the former hockey writer, said, you know, uh, Henry, Kevin's from Michigan. I'm pretty sure he speaks hockey fluently. I think he covered the Red Wings when they were in Port Huron on training camp, and he was probably at Eisenman's uh, rookie training camp, which I was. Yeah. And they always say he was 160, but I have a story that says he was 153. So he was when he showed him. Yeah, that's what he had, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, do you remember, uh, like, now, like, you maybe didn't notice him at the time, but do you remember... That. Yeah, he seemed very small, but he was so much better than everybody else. Like, yeah. you know, and, and that was true. Um, I remember actually writing a lead where I, uh, and I don't remember exactly how it was phrased, but I basically said Steve Eisman was the best player in the mere mortal division, you yeah. know, not counting uh, uh, Lemieux and, and Gretzky, because that was when he had 150 points. He was so good. Like, right. in, my, in my 34th year, the uh, the two people who were the best on a breakaway that I ever saw were Lemieux and Eisenman. Mm. Like Eisenman, I don't know what his percentage is because we don't keep that now, but I would say he was a seventy yeah. percent scoring guy on a breakaway, and he got a lot of breakaways. You know, Lemieux probably was eighty five or ninety, but Eisenman was right up there. Like he was just incredible. But he when he showed up, he was he was dazzling, right. uh, just dazzling as a player. Um, Did he come in with hype? Like so, I I was not. This is before my time. Well, so like, not not as hype as we define it today. But right. you know, everybody was kind of excited about it. But there was a great disappointment uh, in in Michigan because they wanted Dale Lafontaine. Right. Um, so. Um, there Including was the, the owner, right? I believe. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Jim Devolano wanted yeah. Pat Lafontaine, right? Um, and obviously, they wouldn't have done too badly with either guy. But um, but uh, every, and once everybody saw him, like you know, there was this great excitement because he was so like you know back then, 
where there wasn't the great emphasis today and players weren't as well-schooled in the art of defense. Right. Um, you could step right out of junior hockey. You know, Eisenman wasn't the only one that did that. You know, Howard Chuck, there were other guys, Turgeon. Guys came right out and just had total quick impact. Right. And uh, that's how he was. I mean, he was just suddenly among the better players in the league. And the fans of Detroit just, you know, took to him. And, you know, there was never any discussion about, uh, you know, whether he was a good all-around player or leader. It's just, man, put up those points. Like, right. it was just so exciting all the time. And then over time, when they couldn't make the inroads, they couldn't get out of the uh, in, in, in the playoffs and everything, and then all of a sudden everybody sort of took stock of, uh, well, you know, is he the guy? And there was sort of a like an anti-Eisenman swing. And, right. you know, not, not heavy, but just about enough and then when there was discussion about trading him it's it's almost as if it forced the red wing fans to really think about how they felt about eisenman yeah and they said you know what he's our guy like they you know talk radio had just started then and there was a lot of stuff people calling up and they were outraged you know you're not going to trade our stevie you know, was that public? Like I, I know now, kind of we, we go back and we tell the story, but like what was were those trade discussions just? Yeah, they came, they had come out. Yeah, like, okay, they, yeah, they, yeah. They, the they Ottawa had, deal. Yeah, the yeah. Ottawa, the Ottawa deal. Yeah, had sort of leaked out. It, it wasn't obviously because there was no social media. It didn't have the play, so right. not everybody knew the story like today. Yeah, um, but it was out there, uh, and that. But I, I think right after that, that's when the fans really started to see. He, he went from Steve to Stevie, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Right. You know, he he, that, he was our guy. Right. You know, that's how fans of Detroit, uh, you know, kind of saw him. And then when he made the, you know, the the uh, concerted effort to be like the warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I've never asked him this too, but you know, was that born out of the idea? Really, like we know that Bowman talked to him about it, but it was it born out of a a real heartfelt desire that he thought if he was a different player, they could win. Or was that the player he was sort of becoming because of all the injuries? Um, right. You know, it was, uh, and it was probably a little both, yeah. you know, to be honest. But, you know, my, for, you know, I have the memories of how dominant he was. Um, and, you know, I'm never going to forget those. But I also, you know, to me, what defines Eisenman is, uh, and I still remember when he was knocked down in that Carolina final and had to use the stick to hoist himself up. Like, yeah. I remember looking down at that, and it was just an incredible thing. Like, he was unable to get off the ice without that stick for leverage to push it down and just kind of pull himself up. And yeah. I thought, wow, you know, that's how far. I mean, it was, he really was playing on one leg. Right. It was remarkable. And you, you see him now, and he's still, he's not moving. You know what I mean? Like no. still, You can tell it still bothers him. Really. Sure. Like, I mean, that, that well, takes its toll on your body. I, I actually remember the quote from the guy that did the surgery. He said, you know, I do this surgery on elderly people to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. I don't do it on modern athletes. Right. Uh, and, and that quote, I just, I just, I mean, it was a startling quote. Yeah. Like, it was incredible. Uh, you know, quote. All right. So my guess is we get into all of our New Year's resolutions. At least I can tell you, for me personally, there's going to be a lot of talk about physical fitness. But there's another side to the game that is just as important that you should definitely be keeping in mind as you figure out ways to to improve yourself in 2020. And I'm talking about mental fitness. Calm, the number one app for sleep and meditation, has teamed up with LeBron James to help you train your mind. 
LeBron and Calm know that your mind is like any other muscle in your body, and Calm can help you train your brain so you sleep better, have less stress, and perform at your best. LeBron says, getting good sleep and finding time to rest is one of the most valuable things I can do for my body and mind. And if you head to calm.com slash full 60, that's calm.com slash full 60, you'll get 40% off a Calm premium membership. So for a limited time, our listeners can join LeBron in using Calm with a 40% discount to an annual subscription at calm.com slash full 60. Unlock content to help you focus, ease stress, and sleep better. Get started at calm.com slash full 60. So you get the inkling that maybe hockey. So it's funny that that story with Rod Beaton is, um, I can relate to it so much because I was in Atlanta and as a young writer and that was it was the same attitude it was like i wanted to help out on the thrashers and like well craig's from michigan so right so yeah surely he there wasn't even like they didn't even ask so like well, surely he knows uh you know the well a bit about the sport he, go out go out and help out with the thrashers but to, to put that into context now at least in my era you know uh, i had seen in the 1970s there was a geography professor professor named carl ogela at eastern who had done a study on what he called the hockey belt Okay, and and he had started the Eastern Michigan Club program, so he was interested in hockey, and you know basically it just showed that the only people in America who knew about hockey but who played hockey was Minnesota, Massachusetts, and Michigan. Yeah. So you know it was actually logical right. to, to, to say what right. they said about me and you because and and look, I I, I once did this. Uh, uh, this is another interesting fact as well, but uh, I did. Um, a student journalist thing that the Red Wings used to do every year. And they had all these student journalists in, and someone says, you know, basically, how do I get your job? Right. And I pointed out, I said, well, you know, there's only like seven or eight people in the country that do what we do. But I said, right. here's the hope for you. Three of them, Craig Custance, uh, Constantinica and oh, me, yeah. we're all from Michigan. <laughs> right. Like, like you know, you got more uh, statistically percentage wise, you got a greater chance by being from Michigan That's because great. it seems like we 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 get you know a percentage of these jobs. Yeah. Like, what's the odds of that? That three of us? Well, they actually were pretty good because <laughs> right. because of just what I said. You know, yeah. we grew up with the game, and you'd end up at uh, papers, and then you just had to fight your way to the top. Oh, that's great. So, um, so kind of just to rewind, what season was your first season? At- uh, 86, 86. 80, 85, 86. I came in, but I, my first full season was 86, 87. I did that entire season. So just to back up, who did, like, who were you reading or who did you, like, who were your influences? Well, for sure. Um, you know, when I, I took over the, you know, the guys that were, you know, Jay Greenberg in Philadelphia, yeah. I thought was the best lead writer that I ever saw. Uh, I, uh, I remember one of his leads where, he talked uh, about that um, Shell Samuelson had skills as a carpenter. He actually worked as a carpenter. And Jay's lead, and every, the fans in Philadelphia were mad at him for being sort of a, what they call the human tripod. He was just, uh, you know, too slow and everything. Right. They were always on him. And uh, Jay's lead was is that she- Samuelson as a carpenter had the skill to construct the gallows by which the Philadelphia fans would like to hang him. That, <laughs> that was his, his lead. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, it was good. But I, I read him. I, I loved uh, uh, Jim Kelly in Buffalo, yeah. and yeah. you know I became friends with those guys. Um, 
and uh, Bob McKenzie at the Hockey News. I got to know him. I'm not familiar um, with his work. Is he still in the? In the yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, those were uh, you know probably the two guys that I, I always followed. But you know what's interesting about that time is is you know now you you know everybody's a national writer because everyone's available. But back then it was hard to find that. Like you yeah. know when you went to a different city, you grabbed all the newspapers. You know right. that was a big right. thing for you because uh, you wanted to see what everybody was doing and you know that we didn't have the access that we have today how so like it's from a, a different time where you talk about it like when i think of the usa today it's in every hotel it, like you're the one that everyone's reading especially in the states how did you deal with that as a young journalist like i think that that's a there's a pressure that comes with well that there was a pressure to be sure but um it, mostly it was just so fun <laughs> right. i mean you weren't I, thinking I, like know, along I, those yeah, lines no i i just you know i you know, uh, I was kind of the voice, you know, in America. And, yeah. uh, you know, I was on a lot of radio shows. Uh, I was in demand. Uh, I had a lot of opportunities. Um, that's how I started writing books. Yeah. Um, and even abroad, like, uh, you know, I remember, um, you know, going to Japan on assignment and uh, the sec- polite security guard comes down. He goes, there are people waiting for you at the end of the uh, press box. I said, what do you mean people? She says, well, there's some fans. And she says, can you come down here? And I went down and there's like six people and they all have copies of my book. They wanted me to sign them. That's and, great. and, you know, basically one of them who spoke perfect English said, you know, you're the only person who you know, we can read about hockey because right. USA Today is the only paper we get here that covers the NHL. Same is true in Russia. Like yeah. I had a following in Russia because you know there was again there was no internet right so you could get usa today in the major cities in moscow and so forth so people who could get that the only person they knew writing hockey you couldn't get the hockey news over there and uh so they knew kevin allen so you know it was fun to have this you know that's an an amazing reach that i never would have yeah no it was it was kind of hard to describe but um you know uh it was it was just amazing and uh um, you know, they, uh, people were used to seeing me show up at every big event right. and all that. And, uh, so it was fun. Like, uh, you know, uh, it, it was, you know, in the early years I traveled 150 days a year, which is a little rough on the family. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, and then we got it down to, it was 110, you know, for a lot of years, uh, uh, and then, you know, by the end we were down to like 70, but it, mostly that was due to just the economics of the business where, right. you know, um, uh, but you know, I remember my wife telling the, the story when I realized how difficult it was, she was talking to my uh, mother-in-law and she was trying to do, to tell her whether or not we were going to attend the family function. And she goes, you know, mom, I don't know how to explain it any, um, more clear than this, you know. If St. Louis beats Detroit <laughs> and Pittsburgh beats Montreal, and uh, Kevin will be there unless the Rangers lose. <laughs> so, so, and I heard her on the phone. And now, you know, my mother had no interest in, right. in hockey, but you know that's how she would explain it. And you know, I remember my uh, oldest uh, daughter. You know, she learned about the ticker on ESPN before anything because she could go down there and see if somebody won. And you know, the, my wife would tell her, you know, if the Rangers win tonight, your dad's coming home. Yeah. And so she'd go down and see that, and then she because she would get up first which is always the way of the world is the mom tries to get the last 10 minutes of sleep. She'd run upstairs and say, dad's coming home. And that's how my wife would find out because she would read the, 
So I'm fascinated by, like, you and I have talked about this because we've had similar experiences. Um, Like, you clearly have a close family. We're sitting in, you know, your your daughter's house. Like, how did you how did you strike that balance? Because it's something that I it's a constant. Yeah, I I still deal with. I'm in the middle. Well, but you know, uh, the one thing that I I always sort of reversed it. Like, I always thought I had it better than a lot of people because when I'm home, yeah, you know, I'm home. Like, I'm home all day. Like, you know, to the point where. They, they probably get tired of them, you know, <laughs> right. but you know, how many dads do you know that could make, uh, you know, middle school volleyball games at three o'clock in the afternoon? Right. I, I could, yeah. you know, because I'd, I could work from home and, you know, I had, because I was the only national writer and I, you know, I set uh, a, a tone in terms of uh, what I was going to do if I wanted to. I could create a story, and if I saw a big game I wanted to go to, like I saw my son played college soccer, and I, I was able to see most of his games yeah. traveling, you know, kind of all the country. Well, you know, it took some work because I had to create, make sure that I had <laughs> stories and stuff. Like, you know, you got to be creative. So you're like that Blackhawks blue- folks gather around for that Blackhawks Blues game because well, you yeah. got to get to Chicago to see. Yeah, that. no, and you, you 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 have to be good enough and confident enough and. You know, and I took advantage of the fact I could get a lot of people to the phone. Yeah. But, you know, I had to schedule and uh, uh, make sure that I could do it. But I, I feel like um, I probably saw my kids more than a lot of guys who work 9 to 5. Yeah. Just because I spent so much time at my house. You know, I had to work the phones. Like, yeah. you know, my oldest daughter would tell stories of, uh, you know, at one point she said, Now, Dad, is that 15 minutes a real 15 minutes or a 15 minutes that's really an hour because you're writing right yeah right and uh you know they they all understood uh, they all got incredible stories of me doing radio shows while you know walking around the grocery store and you know <laughs> kelsey my one daughter says that she was the only one in third grade that knew how to pronounce hobby boolin <laughs> right you know all that kind of stuff so oh that's great now have any uh, have any of your kids gotten into the industry like do you have any not, writers not, no they all write really well yeah uh, they do and uh um but um you know my daughter w- did some magazine writing but they're all you know one of them's an occupational therapist one of them is a teacher and the other is in public health mm. um so uh, none of them went into it but did you discourage it i did, did you- not um but i think they saw the business and it's they knew great. um I, I don't think any of them you know liked the travel aspect of it mm-hmm. and um i'm pretty sure they saw the difficulty yeah. uh, it'd be interesting if they were sitting around i don't think that uh any of them would say that they were deprived but i would think they'd have harsher stories than i would have about you right know, you know like i you know i i covered the lions on thanksgiving even though i was a hockey writer i did it for like 20 years in a row yeah that's pretty disruptive on thanksgiving right. when, when, you, yeah, when like, you're at the lions game and at one point we had 20 some people i remember this we had 20 some people at our house for a big thanksgiving and they held it until I could get home from you know writing a Lions. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is like my wife always. She's like, it's easier for you to leave us. Like you know, because once we're on the road, it, you do tend to get into tunnel vision. I'm at this event and I'm covering the Winter Classic, whatever it is, and it's like it, it is. Yeah. I think sometimes it's harder like to be the one back. No, I know. Yeah, it is. And uh, you know, I've heard my wife. People always say, "Oh, that must have been hard." And her answer has always been the same. I knew who he was when I married him. Like, yeah. You know, he was already a journalist. 
um, and I knew what he wanted to do. And I, you know, I didn't enter into this with my eyes right. shut. We didn't just show up and suddenly I was like, she knew that the responsibility that I was going right. to do. Right? Yeah, you weren't like surprise. I'm a yeah, yeah, I'm a journalist. Okay. Yeah, it's my daughter. My daughter, middle child, is really a good writer. Like, re- like you can already tell. She's she's and she loves editing. She loves writing. She's like this morning she woke up, went on her laptop, and was just writing a story. And 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 I'm like I, I struggle with like I, I want to like that's what she's good at and that's what she's passionate about so I want to encourage it and I'm also like I want to be clear like you know we on some level we were lucky like I was lucky with my timing you were like you know what I mean like it right. just everything worked perfectly that I was able to do this or so far and not go in a, in a way that's that you know looks normal to them but I'm like it really isn't yeah well it's speaking of timing like you know when I, I'm in college when Woodward and Bernstein. You know, break Watergate, yeah, and uh, suddenly, you know, everybody wanted to be a journalist then, right. and there was a great emphasis on building up um, the staffs, investigative staffs of all the papers. So when I'm coming out, it was the absolutely perfect. And you know, the one thing that has changed, uh, it makes me sad, is that um, when I first started, like when you were sitting next to someone on a plane, and they saw you typing away, and they asked you about it, you were proud and happy to talk about being a journalist right not so much anymore that's scary you don't know if they're going to be mad no that's exactly right i I had to do uh uh man on the street interviews and columbus uh for ohio state when urban meyer situation broke all right Um, i was covering some football and uh it was the first time i realized how people hostile people are to journalists i was trying to do and i had people walking up telling the person i was trying to interview not to talk to me because Mm. i was a journalist and uh you know we're just not perceived in the same way as we were you know 10 15 20 years ago Uh, people look at us and you know fake news we hear it all the time our president talks about it yeah uh and uh you know, of course, you and I are in this business. We know none of us think like that. None of us are involved in that, but it doesn't change the perception, and perception is something reality. So it is a little bit different now. The respect factor that I used to enjoy, I found at the end of my career, wasn't there. So uh, that leads me to two thoughts, or two questions, same question, but two areas. The biggest change you saw in the business from start to finish, I'd be curious. And then in hockey, like the game is... Yeah. that you cover has changed. So if, if you want to, if one jumps to mind first, I would be well, curious. Well, you know, people think it's the internet, but, you know, I, I went from the typewriter to a computer. So <laughs> That's a pretty big change. I mean, like, uh, you know, it, and when I wrote my first stories, like I, I was, when, when I was in, uh, by the time I got out of college, you know, when I'm 21 years old, I had already written a thousand stories. Mm. You know, I mean, I'd worked for my college paper. I was working for the Ypsilanti Press. I had done a couple of internships. Did you go to Eastern? I did. Yeah, okay. I went to Eastern Michigan. And uh, I had, uh, I when anyone needed something covered at Eastern Michigan, like I became the guy everybody knew. So, you know, I had stories in the Toledo Blade or in the Indianapolis paper or East right. Coast and all that. And, and when I'd write those stories, you'd them on a telecopier at six minutes a page so you'd write your story and if you wrote four pages it would take you 24 minutes to send it yeah you know th- that was a huge change now suddenly we're out we're so i don't even know what that so you're typing it on a typewriter right it's like like is it like a photocopier it's, it's like or? a yeah it's like you a fax machine okay, and, yeah, and yeah, it yeah. rolls right you know you like crank it and then it rolls and it takes six minutes for a page to appear in wherever you're trying to send it 
So, you know, and, you know, if you, you would never in a hundred million years just have like two lines on the fifth page because that's going to take six minutes. You <laughs> right. know, so you you're know, tightening it up. You're tightening it up. Yeah, yeah that's right. You, you made you a better writer. Um, and, uh, and then all of a sudden we got these Radio Shack computers where you can only see three lines. Yeah. And, not, you know, now you had to create continuity when you're staring only at three lines. And you're writing back then, you're writing 20, 25 in stories. So, yeah. you know, that, that was a huge change when we started getting that. And to be able to instantly send your story um, was a remarkable uh, change. And then, of course, the Internet just kind of changed everything. And, and I think... It, to me, it, it started the death of the feature story because so much information was available about players that now it's hard to write a feature unless you have special circumstances. Right. If, you, if you have an incredibly uh, heroic or, or courageous voice speaking on a subject mm -hmm. or a very sad tale. Otherwise, you know, you, it's hard to write. You can't run the traditional athletic uh, figure uh, feature that we would have written 20 years ago because right. people already know they know so everything much. about these people yeah yeah, yeah. They, they read their twitter feeds <laughs> right. you know right. so yeah so, they're getting it direct from the athletes yeah so it, that's really that's what's really changed our business is what we can write and um and the other thing too is we used to be an authoritative voice and now our readers feel their authoritative voices because they can get on there so uh, they don't feel our opinions are, um, well, uh, that's too harsh. Uh, I think they do respect um, people who have the, you know, institutional knowledge because they've been part of the game. But they also have their opinions as well. And I think you have to respect that, Yeah. that they all have that. And if you don't, then you're not going to survive. Right. Um, but, and changing the game, like, it's so much, it's so different now. Like, when I first started covering the sport, nobody wanted to have a, uh, uh, their company associated with hockey. I mean, it was the 1980s. Like, I mean, we were still like a caricature. We were, you know, we had cartoon violence and everything yeah. else. And, um, you know, despite the fact that he's booed everywhere he goes, um, uh, Gary Bettman brought hockey out of the dark ages uh, for sure. Uh, he made it a mainstream sport. Um, all of a sudden, sponsorships wanted to be part of this. Um, he, he, he made it professional. Right. Um, he gave it, uh, um, credibility and, you know, it's really changed, but, you know, saying all that, you know, I know from my own experience and, and being a, a, at a heavyweight national paper, we still don't command the same interest as, uh, the NBA or football. I mean, football is so huge compared to hockey right. that it's hard to describe. And that's one of the issues, um, <clears throat> that I've had with, uh, the NHL not going to the Olympics, um, where I understand their issues. Right. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen them, the fear of injury, the fact they aren't treated well. Shutting the league down. Yeah, and, and uh, all that. They're know, all, that's all legitimate stuff. Yeah. But to me, it doesn't override the fact that, the you know, as a guy who's covered 10 Olympics, you know, I can tell you just by the number of readers, like when, when, when Oshie scored that mm -hmm. goal, uh, my readership that day was 500,000. A half a million people read that story. And I can't get that in the NHL. I can't get anywhere near that. No, no one can. I, it's funny you mentioned the Oshie goal. Like, that to me is, like, I remember at the time I had neighbors coming up to me and saying, oh, I, that's, that's my favorite hockey. TJ Oshie's my favorite hockey player. Yeah. And then they would go, but who does he play for in the NHL? Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I'm like, wow. Well, the number that one. That to me was so telling. Back in uh, Vancouver, um, in the great... Uh, 
uh, you know, Crosby uh, goal and uh, that win, um, we were doing uh, f- fan chats there. That was the end thing yep. for journalism. Oh, yeah. And the number one question every day is where did Ryan Miller come from? Like, what right. team does he play for? <laughs> yeah. yeah. They had no, people had no idea. Yeah. And the same thing with Ovechkin. When we were in Russia, people wanted to know all about Ovechkin. Like, well, what team does he play for? Yeah. So, you know, we forget that there are still so many people in America that don't have any idea. It's so true. You yes. know, I, and I go back to 1992, there was a great uh, goaltending performance by a guy named Ray LeBlanc. Mm-hmm. And nobody ever heard of him. He was a minor leaguer. He played. Uh, uh, he played his tail off. Uh, he played very, very well. And um, I remember Art Berglund, who was the director of uh, hockey operations for USA Hockey, said more people in America today know Ray LeBlanc than Brian Leach, who mm-hmm. was the top defenseman in the league. And he was absolutely right. Yeah. yeah absolutely right. Like there were everybody who knew Ray LeBlanc was because everybody was watching the Olympics. And, and they didn't know Brian Leach because they, they didn't watch the NHL. Right. And so that's why I, I wish the NHL could find room. And even though I understand their issues and they have every right to feel that way, uh, I think it, for the good of the game, it's good that everybody in the world sees these athletes uh, in that stage. All right. So in our, for our final portion here, I'm going yeah. to take advantage of the fact that you've covered so much and do almost like a lightning round. So let's stick with international okay. play. Okay. Best, best Olympic game or moment for you that you uh, I got two I'm going to go number one it's it is going to be even though it was a Canadian victory and I covered <laughs> the American team I, I, it, it's got to be the Crosby goal oh, so I just good. thought so much pressure uh, and everybody in Canada was watching it was so dramatic and uh, I thought U.S. played well in that but my favorite moment right. that was the biggest moment yeah. was the Forsberg uh, goal I, by far like really oh oh it was so the tension in that arena it was a small arena you could just feel it like nobody wanted to take those shots and this young kid comes up and then to do it with that dramatic move right. like uh, i that was such uh you know it really was it reminded me of the you know the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat yeah. like you know we found out afterwards some of the veterans didn't want to go they didn't want to take shot because they knew right. you know how tough the media would be on them if they you know didn't perform and forsberg said i'll go let's yeah. go you know, and I, I loved Forsberg. I, I just found him to be, you know, I saw him elbow uh, Bob Probert after Probert went after him. And I afterward, Probert didn't go back and kill him. Yeah. And I said to Proby afterward, like, why didn't you go back at him? He goes, I, I really respected the kid. He goes, you know, nobody comes back at me. Right. Nobody right. does. That's what he said. And so that's why I enjoyed Forsberg. But what a great what lesson you, Forsberg, if you're willing to step up in that moment, and you may end up on a stamp. You know yeah, what I mean? You're yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yes, there's huge risk, but now he's yeah. a, and, a legend. And the, the other thing about that, that was a shootout. Yeah. Like, I, that's never never lost on me. That, that you know, that was a shootout, but the, the tension, and everybody was into that shot. Yeah. You know, everyone was standing up. It was incredible. Um, uh, any city stand out to you, foreign city, in, in, that you just love to go to? And, um. And, and, well, my favorite Olympics were the Lillehammer Olympics. Yeah. I loved it because I, I ended up staying over there two weeks afterward. My wife came over and joined me, and we went with another couple. So I ended up spending like 30-some days in, oh, wow. in Norway. So it was a pretty incredible uh, experience. And I, I loved uh, – I was in a, um, in a bar, 
and I was listening to play-by-play call, and it was so exciting. Couldn't understand what the guy was saying, but you know, it, well, you can just see, and everybody's out of their chair, and everybody's listening. And I finally said to an American-speaking uh, waiter, "Like, what is it?" And he goes, "Oh, it's the biathlon." Like, I mean, it sounded like the most exciting thing in the world. Like they were calling this, yeah. And you know, you're calling the biathlon on radio. Yeah, and, and everybody was totally into it. I love that. All right, uh, on the NHL side, best series, best series you ever covered. Uh, I'm going back. Uh, I, I probably got three of those. I love the '87 uh, series. Um, you know, Hextall, uh, and the, you know the great goal with um, uh, Nielsen, Anderson, and Messier breaking down the ice. They both. I think all three guys were at Mach two when they hit the red line. <laughs> Mach three when they hit the blue line. And scoring that goal, which, you know, obviously in Game 7, that kind of changed the series. And, you know, the Flyers had come back. They had Keenan then. And it, it was a real villain. Keenan was the villain. Right. So it was just a tremendous series. And uh, what I remember about it, too, was is that uh, it was at a time when hardly anybody covered the league. So, like, you would sit in Wayne Gretzky's cubicle while, while he was out practicing, waiting for him to come back. You yeah. Know, you could just kind of sit there, and then, you know, there'd be three of us kind of sitting there, and then he'd come back in. And then, you know, he talked to 10 or 12 guys. Right. Well, now there's hundreds of people, yeah, and you can't get those I can't those imagine in yeah. that moment. Yeah, yeah so I love that one. Uh, I love the Rangers uh, when they won. It was yeah. it had been such a long time, and, and you know, the, because that was the guarantee year as well. So, um, And they, that's, you talk about when the NHL players are playing the Olympics, when it a New York team in the States is playing in the final or, or yeah. we, we saw it with Chicago. Like there's a huge difference in national interests, at least like I was at ESPN when the Rangers, you know, had their run a couple of years ago and all of a sudden it's like they, they want you to go on sports. All, all these things where they did not care about hockey, but the Rangers are playing. Yeah. This became a national story. Cause it's yeah. New York. Yeah, no, and it was, it was, it was so big. And then I loved, uh, seeing Ovechkin win. Uh, yeah, I thought funny. it was, uh, incredible, and uh, I love the way how he celebrated the new standard of celebration <laughs> that he established, uh, which will be hard to match. Uh, that they actually had to create new rules for, you know, no uh, keg stands with the cup uh, uh, because of them. I, you know, and I, I've always felt that Ovechkin will be much more appreciated when he's mm. gone. Uh, I, I think he's been an, at an incredible run. Uh, and I had to do before I left, one of the last things I did was a player of the decade. And my impulse was to just push the Crosby button because I really love Crosby. And I didn't. I pushed the oh, Ovechkin button. Oh, did you? I did the Crosby button. I actually yeah, did the same story. I, I had the same. Yeah. I, I was going to push it. And the reason I did was is because everybody said nobody could beat Gretzky. And now we're talking about maybe yeah maybe he could do it and so i did i i think it's one a and one b right but i pushed the ovechkin button and i think i'm happy with doing it away because as you know i love crosby yeah and, you know, I've, I've, i you know i went and interviewed him when i was 16 and it was like seeing the beatles you know there's so many people lined up to get his autograph it was incredible um yeah, so you've had that perspective of seeing both of those guys from start to finish. How old was Alex when you first saw him? Like, because I remember at the time the Capitals were giving really good access to. Yeah, it was incredible because I, they were like, "We want people to know this. This kid's gonna be great," and they wanted they wanted people to know it. Well, what's interesting about him is is that um, uh, early in his career, uh, you know, he was a terrible interview, um, yeah. and uh, you know, I always used to joke, you know, I'd say to the Capitals, "Am I going to get the good over or the bad over?" Because you never quite knew what you were going to get when if he wanted to play nobody could be better right but and and really that was unfair because you know the language 
barrier. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, to me, it was a hard contrast between Crosby, who I met when I was 16 and I had a relationship with him, and then Ovechkin, that I had to work hard to get anything from him. So, you know, the fact that I have such great respect for him now, and I really, really like him, yeah. um, I think that you know, speaks to what an incredible uh, guy he is and how he's worked at, you know, being, uh, uh, you know, he's always been accessible, but now I think he's a much better interview. He, yeah. He's, he's funny. A, and he's, yeah, he's, a, he's know, very funny. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think you think the challenge, like imagine dropping one of us off in Russia at, at 18 and then being a center yeah. and having Russian reporters want to go to lunch with us. I can't even imagine, you know, how do you, the fact that we now, at least we think we know his personality and, and kind of have a feel for him says a lot about him. No, I, I completely agree. Like, he's been so cooperative with us. You know, USA Today is located right outside uh, Washington, D.C., and, like, we've done, uh, you know, we have we had a, a guy on staff who was a goalie in a, in a pickup league, and we had Ovechkin taking shots on him, and, <laughs> right. you know, and he was willing to do that. Yeah. And he's always been cooperative for, with me. You know, he, he's always done a good job of uh, doing what he can. So I, I, I think both of them have just been incredible um, ambassadors for the game, and uh, like I, th- I thought, you know, they may have done it. They being USA Hockey gave him the Gretzky Award because it was in Washington. But I thought he's deserving of it, right? Because I think there is a whole generation of people, particularly abroad. Like he is so popular uh, in Russia and you know in uh, you know like even Sweden and Finland. Like yeah. everybody knows Ovechkin right. because of international hockey. And I think he has helped grow the game. Uh, just because certainly in DC, like I was at that event, and we, they they would show these film clips of yeah. Alex in the community, like in the joy on the faces, the kids and him, like they're having fun. Like that's, yeah. you can't fake that. Yeah, and he he has fun. Right, you know? like he likes being at the rink. Like he really is a rink rat. Yeah. So. Um, all right, uh, and I I, 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 you've probably been asked this a million times. Favorite guy to interview. Um. Yeah, I have been asked that. Um, or women too. You've covered. I mean, you've yeah, covered I have the U.S. Covered. men, U.S. women. Any any person that jumps out. Yeah. Um. It's I'm, funny when I get asked. Just, I'll give you. I'll. I'll. I'll uh, give you a second to think. Well, unless you have an answer. Well, I, I do. Uh, I do. Uh, there, there's guys that I, I like. I always enjoyed uh, uh, talking to Gretzky uh, yeah. because he gives you very intellectual. And because of how big he was, I, I probably would have to say him. But in terms of fun interviews, yeah, it's it's Jeremy Roenick, Keith Kachuk, guys from that American that generation. Right. You know, I, I've known Jeremy Roenick since he was 17, and, uh, and I always say this: when he was 17, he was 17 going on 30. He mm-hmm. was very mature. And then when he was 27, he was like 17. Because once <laughs> 27 he got, going on 17. 17. Because once he got to the game, and he'll even tell you this, like he was so focused on being a hockey player, and he was, you know, he was uh, he was not a partier in high school. Right. It was all about hockey. And then he got in the NHL, and suddenly he, as soon as he got in there, he let his hair down, and he got yeah. wild. Right. And and you know, and he was, you know, and even his wife will tell you, you know, he was just crazy. Yeah. Uh, and then he found a balance, but but you know, uh, so I always did. But I, I that the greatest hockey generation. Uh, you know, Keith uh, or Walt to his friends, Kachuk, yeah. Billy Guerin, uh, Roenick, Madano, like uh, all those guys I love talking to. Uh, yeah. Just because I know them so well, I watch them grow up. You've done every one of their books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more or less. <laughs> you know, Brett Hall. 
Yeah. You know, I was speaking yeah. of guys I've done the book, I enjoy talking to him, Darren McCarty, you know, guys I have done the books with too as well. Do you do you have any book plans? You got you always Well, I've got something? Mike Emmerich uh, that I just finished with him. Uh Stu Grimson oh, wow. came out and uh uh I actually my agent I worked with an agent for the f- first time in 25 years. Yeah. The same guy that that you worked with. Yeah. Uh, on the Stu Grimson book and then I got Emmerich's book and uh I, I just was approached about doing another Hall of Famer, so uh, I'll talk to him about it and see if we, we mix. But uh, there's a chance I'll have one next year, too. Nice. Is there one experience of those books that, that stands out? Um, those are a challenge, yeah. like, especially when you're doing the As Told, too. Like, yeah, they are. Not, not everybody loves those, but I, I actually do because I love the moment when you give the book back to them and, you're, and, and things that they feel you're going to turn into a chapter, you've turned into one paragraph. Right. And things that you think they think are a paragraph, you've turned into a chapter. Um, I like you to who was it that you either had to take out the F-bombs or put them back in? Oh, that was Jeremy Roenick. <laughs> uh, that's a true story. Like, he... I, um, I just thought he had too many, yeah. And, and sure. so I, I went them all, and I, I, I forget the numbers, but uh, th- these numbers are somewhat in the ballpark. He had like four hundred and fifty some, and I cut it back down to two twenty right. or something. And then when we had this meeting with the lawyer and going over everything, and Jeremy said, "You know, I, I, I don't like that you sanitized it." Mm. And I said, "Well, I did that. I just thought they would be coming overwhelming." And you know we're all kind of hashing this out, and uh, the the publisher said, you know, I, I don't mind those, and I said, fine, I'll put them back in. Yeah. So I did. I went back, and to be honest, I'm not sure I got them in the right places, but I think it's real easy just to kind of tuck that word in here and there. So, so <laughs> right, right. I, I think I got them close to being in the right places. That, that's awesome. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. I've really enjoyed I mean, kind of trip huge, down many uh, down memory lane. Huge influence in so many careers, mine included. As a young American, you're, you know, you're the guy that we all read, and so I, I hope you realize the influence you've had on everybody in this industry. Well, I, I don't think I did, but I have gotten a lot of messages since this came down. Yeah, and and what people may not realize about Kevin is like you never like you talked about your influence and you're known throughout the world, like. As a young writer, I never would have known. You know what I mean? Like, you never acted that way. And I, I, you, you came to me. I remember the first All Star game I was at with you in Dallas, and you came to me, and you're like, "Yeah, hey, you're the new guy in Atlanta," and you introduced yourself, and and so I'm like, "Okay, I, that's you know, that's how you treat people. That's how you treat young writers." And you set a great example, Kevin. And I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate that you saying that. Thanks. And thanks for doing this. And, and so where can people? You said you're, you've got a, your pod is still going. You've got, I do. I'm doing uh, uh, with uh, former NHL player Tom uh, Laidlaw, and uh, it's on YouTube. If you uh, just Google Laidlaw and Allen, you'll you'll find us. Uh, and uh, if you uh, he was on Survivor, so he's easy to find on Facebook <laughs> uh, as, as well. And I do one with Bob Duff as well on HockeyDebates.com and. Uh, um, I'm hoping to stay uh, stay active in this hockey world. I'm not quite sure where I'm going to land, but I think I'll land somewhere. Yeah. Anyway, we'll see. Awesome. Well, thanks, Kevin. My pleasure. I want to thank Kevin for joining the podcast. Make sure if you are not following Kevin on Twitter, and I'm just assuming you are because he's got a, a ton of followers on Twitter, but you can follow along where, where he's headed next because I'm sure we have not seen, I'm positive we haven't seen the last of Kevin covering the world of hockey. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at by Kevin Allen, and he also still has uh, the podcast going uh, that he does. It's called the Laidlaw and Allen Podcast. Excuse me, the Laidlaw and Allen Report, 
and that's with former NHL player and agent Tom Laidlaw. And you can check that podcast out at laidlawallenreport.com. And so awesome. Thanks, Kevin, for joining the podcast. Thank you for listening. Just before we wrap up, always want to encourage anybody who has a quick second to leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening to this. Um, just takes a couple seconds and it really helps out the podcast. So if you have a minute to do that, I would greatly appreciate it. All right, that's it. That's a wrap. Thanks, Kevin, again for joining the podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great week.